This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hey y'all, so I'm excited to be back with an all-new episode, but before we head out to a haunted house in East Tennessee, I got a couple of cool things to tell you about. First off, congratulations to my sister Brienne. Volume 3 of The Feminine Macabre has been released and it's available now on Amazon. This is an all-female and non-binary paranormal journal that explores witchcraft, hauntings, astrology, folklore, Victorian spiritualism, dark history, tarot, cryptids, and of course, because Brienne's involved, Julia Brown, the supposed voodoo queen of Frenier, Louisiana. So please go get your copy today or sign up for our newsletter over at southerngothicmedia.com for a chance to win a signed copy that we'll be giving away at the end of April. Now, in other news, I was recently interviewed on the Me and My Friends podcast by Chris Williamson the gentleman behind some great podcasts like Vanished and Chasing Earhart. Well, Chris and I chatted for a little while about a bunch of different topics related to podcasting, ghosts, life in general, all that stuff. And it was an absolute blast. So if you're not tired of hearing me talk just yet, I hope you go give it a listen. Chris is a great guy, and he's made some really cool stuff that I cannot recommend enough. So go check out me and my friends. The episode will be out sometime this week. The link's in the show notes. So with that, let's go get into some good old-fashioned ghost stories.
The city of Kingsport is located in the northeastern corner of Tennessee, seated on the Holston River in what is now Sullivan and Hawkins counties. The land was once inhabited by the native Cherokee peoples, and the nearby Long Island of the Holston served as a sacred ancestral location for thousands of years. The earliest white settlements in the region were founded in the 1770s and were primarily used as staging grounds for pioneers preparing to travel westward through Kentucky along the Wilderness Road blazed by famed frontiersman Daniel Boone. The population in the region continued to grow over the following decades as the community became an important shipping hub on the Holston River. So in 1822, the town of Kingsport was officially chartered. Some believe it was named in honor of Colonel James King, who constructed a mill at the mouth of Reedy Creek after settling the area in 1774. But others claim it was a man named William King who arrived in 1802 and built a boatyard known as King's Boatyard or King's Port. This commercial enterprise was the seed for what would eventually become a bustling shipping center. Officially, Kingsport recognized Colonel James King as its namesake, but records from the time the town was chartered also place great emphasis on William King and his contributions. Prior to this, however, the community had a number of other names. For some time, it was known as everything from Island Flats to Fort Robinson and Fort Patrick Henry. At one point, it was called Christianville for an early settler who hoped to build a town there. And at another, it was known as Rossville for a man whose mansion still sits on the banks of the Holston River to this very day. A mansion that now holds a notorious legacy as the home to some of the most infamous Tennessee spirits. There, it is said that the daughter of Frederick A. Ross still roams in heartache and the disembodied screams of torture echoed through the air from the actions of a malevolent slave owner still wreaking havoc on the property property known simply as Rotherwood. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. Audio fiction fans, y'all need to go check out The Sprouting, an eldritch horror of an actual play podcast set in an apocalyptic future where eldritch plants have taken over, magical bargains twist the fabric of reality, and each survivor struggles to trust their own senses as they try to see their goals through to their ends. This podcast features an international cast, original scoring, and immersive sound design. In fact, y'all, here's a quick preview of The Sprouting, available now anywhere you get your podcasts. With your long forgotten name, we call upon you. We call upon you. 
In the words of the unspeakable language, we call upon you. We call upon you. By the spilt blood of the wicked who walk upon this world sprouting the words of false idols, we call upon you. We call upon you. On the land of the dead harvest, that which brings the earth itself into your service, Yamal, we call upon you. We call upon you. We call upon you. We call upon you. Yamal calls upon you. The Sprouting, a Call of Cthulhu actual play podcast by Blighthouse Studio. Find us on your podcatcher of choice. All right, y'all, guess what? One of my favorite true crime podcasts is coming out with an all-new season. But it's not the kind of true crime show that is filled with horrific murders or grim circumstances. It's one about the unlikely collisions between true crime and the arts. And it is called, aptly, The Art of Crime. It's hosted by my friend and trained historian, Gavin Whitehead. Now, each season, Gavin centers the show around a different theme, like in his first season, it was Jack the Ripper, but season three is titled Queen of Crime, Madame Tussaud, and the Chamber of Horrors. And y'all, it's going to be telling two stories. First, it chronicles the great Madame's long and distinguished career, kicking off in pre-revolutionary France and wrapping up in Victorian London. Each episode covers a chapter in her biography, exploring her rise to fame as well as the earth-shaking historical events that she witnessed. Second, this season charts the evolution of the Chamber of Horrors, a special showroom in her wax museum that displayed effigies of notorious criminals. So y'all, I hope you will take a chance on Gavin's new season of The Art of Crime, because I'm not kidding when I tell you I'm actually a Patreon supporter of this show myself, and I just think he does such great work and has such a fresh approach to storytelling. So what are you waiting for? Go subscribe or follow or listen or whatever it is you're supposed to do to the art of crime. That is the art of crime. I hope y'all dig it. On the west side of Kingsport, Tennessee, is Rotherwood, an old antebellum mansion overlooking the spot where the two forks of the Holston River come together. The historic home was once part of a plantation owned by Reverend Frederick Augustus Ross, who took its name from one of his favorite novels, Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe. Today, this red brick structure is privately owned, but according to local lore, it's home to more than just the living. On September 3, 1824, Frederick Augustus Ross and his wife Theodosia welcomed their first of 15 children into the world, a daughter named Rowena. The girl was a dark-haired beauty, well-loved by her family and the absolute apple of her father's eye. Like his plantation, his daughter's name was taken from Ivanhoe, and it's said that the Reverend often lavished Rowena with gifts and presented the young girl with every opportunity to ensure her future prosperity in the world. So when Rowena was old enough, she left home and attended a highly selective school for young ladies in the Northeast. Then, after graduating, Rowena returned to Rotherwood, took her place in high society, and eventually caught the eye of a young man from Knoxville. Soon enough, the pair were engaged to marry 
But just after the nuptials took place at the Presbyterian Church in Kingsport, tragedy struck. Author Pete Dykes writes, Rowena had remarked about the beautiful tree blossoms she had seen on the dogwood trees just across the river and how lovely they would be for a centerpiece at the dining table. Gallantly, the groom had volunteered to take a flatboat and row across the stream to fetch a load of the flowering stems. As the bride, still wearing her wedding gown, watched from the riverbank, her groom's flatboat capsized in midstream and his frantic efforts to swim proved futile. He drowned in the rushing water while Rowena looked on in horror. (laughs) Depending on the storyteller, the reason for the young man's drowning varies, but all do agree that following the death of her first love, Rowena sank into a deep depression and for years she refused to leave her room. Eventually though, the grief did subside and she re-entered the Kingsport social scene and carried on with her life, where she once again caught the eye of a young eligible bachelor, Edward Temple, a wealthy gentleman from Knoxville. The pair married not long after, on May 23, 1850. In 1853, they had a daughter who they named Theodosia Ross Temple. Unfortunately, Rowena experienced even more horror as Edward contracted yellow fever while on a trip to New Orleans. And the young woman once again found herself widowed. It is said that the beautiful young Rowena was now a truly changed person. And never having fully recovered from the loss of her first love, the pain was compounded exponentially by the death of Edward. But now, Rowena had a child to take care of, so she decided to marry once more to a man named Wescombe Hudgens. This time, however, it was Rowena's husband who would be left consumed by grief. Legend says that one night, when her daughter was still a small child, Rowena became convinced that her first love was calling for her from the water. So the young mother put on her wedding dress from that fateful day when he had drowned and walked straight into the waters of the Holston River to join him in eternity. Today, it is said that a lady in white has been witnessed walking the property around Rotherwood, particularly along the banks of the Holston River. Purportedly, the apparition is dressed in a flowing white bridal gown and is often seen frantically searching for her lost love in the waters. Some have also claimed that from time to time, this woman is joined by her beau, Author Alan Brown chronicled one such sighting in his book, Haunted Tennessee. He wrote, In 1995, a man and his family were fishing from the bank of the Holston River near a bridge when they heard laughter 
the man looked up from fishing and saw a man and a woman wearing wedding clothes from the previous century walking down the steps of Rotherwood Mansion, and the couple seemed to be very much in love. The fisherman turned to his brother to point out the happy couple, but when he looked back, they were gone. Many claim that these apparitions continue on around the mansion to this very day. After the tragic loss of his daughter and mounting financial problems from failed business ventures, Frederick Ross was forced to sell his beloved plantation. But according to legend, the new owner was nothing like the pious reverend and a new kind of horror was introduced to the old Kingsport home. Joshua Phipps, who had worked as both Ross's bookkeeper and the plantation's overseer, purchased the property. But according to local lore, Phipps was an exceedingly cruel man who took great joy in the brutal treatment of the enslaved men and women. It is said that while working for Reverend Ross, these impulses were curbed but once he owned the plantation outright, there was no one there to stop Phipps from acting as he pleased. Soon enough, his sadistic nature became well known throughout the community and stories began to circulate that on clear nights, the sound of screams could be heard echoing through the sky for miles around. Some even claimed that Phipps enjoyed inflicting pain so much that he erected a whipping post inside the house itself. Yet according to others, Phipps did not act alone. It is said that he had a mistress as cruel and sadistic as himself, a woman of mixed race who was supposedly one of his former slaves. Eventually, Phipps's neighbors ostracized him for his actions, a testament to his extreme nature as they too were slave owners. But it wasn't until July of 1861, when Joshua Phipps' reign of terror at Rotherwood came to a legendary end. It is said that Phipps contracted an unknown, fast-acting illness that left him bedridden, and within days his fever grew to drastic heights. In an effort to lower his temperature in the summer heat, a young enslaved boy was forced to stand beside him and constantly cool him with a fan. But Phipps' condition only grew worse and worse, and this boy who was meant to comfort him ended up being the last person to see him alive. According to legend, one night, a thick swarm of black flies appeared in the room where Phipps lay sleeping. The flies went straight for the sadistic slave owner, covering his face and entering his mouth and nostrils. Phipps gasped for air, but the flies continued to swarm, eventually suffocating him. Terrified, the boy watched as the flies then left as quickly as they came, escaping through an open window. Some believe that Joshua Phipps' horrifying death was the result of a curse placed on him by the enslaved men and women 
he had taken so much joy in torturing. But the story does not end there. The day of Phipps' funeral was dark and the sky was full of ominous looking clouds. Despite, or perhaps because of his notorious reputation, a large crowd gathered to see him off. But as the horse-drawn carriage carrying the casket began to climb the hill to the graveyard where he'd be laid to rest, it began to slow and eventually stop. It seemed that the casket had all of a sudden become increasingly heavier and heavier, and the horses were struggling to pull it up the hill. They toiled for what some say was hours, but eventually the procession began again. When it finally reached its resting place, an immense flash of lightning pierced the dark skies and the coffin began to tremble and shake. Suddenly, an enormous black dog with piercing red eyes emerged and leaped into the frightened crowd of onlookers before racing down the hill. The women screamed and the men stood aghast at the sight of what many now consider to be a hound of hell. Then, when the vicious beast finally disappeared from view, the sky opened and rain began pouring down sending the onlookers scattering for shelter. The gravediggers, on the other hand, hastily got to work to inter Joshua Phipps as fast as humanly possible. According to local lore, both Joshua Phipps and the Hound from Hell continue to make Rotherwood their home to this very day. Those who've encountered the man's spirit say he's as malevolent as he was in life, tormenting people who visit the property with physical aggression. Others have claimed to hear his maniacal laughter echoing through the halls, and some neighbors who live in the Rotherwood Estates, a modern residential subdivision, say they sometimes hear the screams of tortured souls coming from the direction of the mansion. As for the Hellhound, it is said to continue to stalk the grounds of what was once Reverend Ross's grand plantation, and on dark and stormy nights, its grave howls can still be heard echoing through the hills of Kingsport, Tennessee, amidst the lightning and thunder. These stories of Rotherwood's past have been passed down for generations, but the history of the property has become so entangled with hearsay that we may not ever be able to separate the truth from legend. However, there are some details that storytellers often mistake in their haste to dramatize what occurred on this historic property. We'll explore this mix of fact and fiction when we return after the break.
So this is History Uncovered, and I'm Kalina. And I'm Austin. We are the co-hosts of the show. History Uncovered is a podcast presented by All That's Interesting, where we both are writers. We cover all sorts of topics, true crime, unsolved mysteries, history, folklore, the paranormal, you name it. We've been doing this now for more than 100 episodes, covering a wide range of topics, and probably something that's bound to be interesting for everyone out there. Absolutely. And in addition to our normal episodes, we also do a history happy hour about the recent news in the world of history and archaeology, which we cover daily on the site, as well as important historical anniversaries. We also have done some special series. We've done one on the Titanic, doing one on Jack the Ripper, mm-hmm. done one about some famous UFO sightings. So if all of that sounds like something that might be interesting to you and you like having a good time, learning new things and maybe maybe laughing or just groaning <laughs> at some bad puns, check out History Uncovered everywhere you get your podcasts. Monsters are as old as humanity itself. Monsters embody our fears. Yet, they help us define the boundaries of what it means to be human. We know most monsters aren't real. Yet, we can use monsters to learn about reality. Psychology, biology, folklore, literature, critical thinking. We're on a journey to learn about the world through the lens of monsters. And we hope you'll come along with us. Subscribe at monstertalk.org. But the legend of Rowena Ross's death and the tales surrounding Joshua Phipps's reign of terror have been a part of East Tennessee ghost lore for over a century and a half. However, what really happened on this historic property may never truly be known. Reverend Frederick Ross first arrived in East Tennessee in 1818 to establish a plantation. Almost immediately, he began to build a home for his family atop a hill on Netherland Inn Road. But this home was not the one that stands today. Its location was roughly 100 yards away from the current site. Exactly what it looked like is unclear, although it's remembered to have been built of brick and covered in white stucco. This building, now referred to as Rotherwood One, was where the Ross family lived, and it stood until 1865, when it was destroyed by a fire of unknown cause. Some believe this was an act of arson, some an act of war by United States soldiers or sympathizers, but others that it was merely an accident. What happened will never be known, but it was this home that Ross lived in with his family the place where he raised his daughter Rowena and mourned her death, not the purportedly haunted building that stands today. The three-story red brick mansion that remains is most accurately identified as Rotherwood II, and while it wasn't built to be the family's residence, it was erected around the same time, the product of two different structures that were combined to make a single home. The initial part of the house was two stories, built in 1818, and it is thought to have been housing for Frederick Ross and his architects, while Rotherwood One was still under construction. A second two-story structure was built later, in 1820, to parallel the first. The exact purpose of the second building is also unknown. However, some believe that the pair of structures were used by the plantation's overseers. 
At some point in the next two decades, these buildings were combined into a single house that still stands today, although the front porch and large white columns that add to its stately appearance were not added until 1906. Does this invalidate the supposed haunting of the lady in white or the vicious spirit of a former slave owner? That's up to the residents of Rotherwood too to decide. But as for the legends themselves, some have questioned their veracity altogether. According to the most prominent versions of the tale, the tragic story of Rowena Ross and the emergence of Rotherwood's Lady in White has seemingly been considered the cause of the failed business ventures of her father and the family's inevitable loss of their plantation to the cruel Joshua Phipps. But in reality, these events have little connection. It is unclear exactly when Rowena was first widowed or if she was even married in the first place, though it is likely that if the event had occurred, it would have been in the late 1830s to mid-1840s. Yet no information has been uncovered to confirm or deny the validity of this story, and no name has ever been given to her first beau. Further bolstering this fact is the autobiography of Reverend Ross, compiled and published by his son in 1903. This document makes absolutely no mention of his beloved daughter having been previously engaged or married, or such a tragedy having ever occurred. As for the Reverend himself, at some point during his time at Rotherwood, he decided to venture into the silk-making business and believe that his property in the area around the Holston River would be the perfect location to make the idea a reality. First, he imported enough white mulberry trees from Japan to create a large grove. As the trees blossomed, Ross then imported the silkworm eggs. At first glance, all seemed to be going according to plan. The silkworms thrived in their Tennessee homes, and Reverend Ross began construction of a manufacturing mill on the river to carry out the silk production. But success remained just out of reach. When the price of cotton fell, the demand for raw silk went with it. This financial hit was then compounded by an unexpectedly bitter winter, where temperatures dropped well below zero, freezing the silkworm eggs. An entirely new crop would have to be imported, and though Ross had planned to order more and try again the following spring, it clearly was not meant to be. Frederick Ross had ultimately overextended himself and did not have enough knowledge about the silk manufacturing business to truly make any profit from it. By 1847, Ross was in such dire financial straits that he was forced to sell most of his land, including Rotherwood too. His former bookkeeper and plantation overseer, Joshua Phipps, did in fact purchase the property but Ross gave no indication as to Phipps's predilection for cruelty and actually called him a, quote, worthy man in his writings. In spite of this sale, the Ross family remained in residence at Rotherwood One for several more years before finally relocating to Alabama 
1854. As for Rowena Ross, she was still alive when her family moved to Alabama, and she did in fact go south with them. After all, she had been left a widow with a young daughter several years before by her husband, Edward Temple. In his writings, Frederick Ross confirms that his daughter married one final time to a gentleman named Wescombe Hudgens, although Ross left no details identifying this union. And oddly, Rowena's gravestone identifies her as only been married to Edward Temple, with those dates provided. This, of course, leads us to the biggest mystery of the Rotherwoods' infamous Lady in White. How and where did Rowena Ross die? According to her headstone, Rowena took her final breath on April 15, 1857. And tragically, the legend is not far from the truth, as she did in fact take her own life in a river, leaving behind a young daughter. But her suicide did not occur at Rotherwood. She died in Huntsville, Alabama, where she and the Ross family resided. The beloved daughter and mother was then laid to rest in Huntsville's Maple Hill Cemetery. Of course, this fact has not deterred folks from believing that her spirit returned to East Tennessee, still in search of her lost love, a search that continues on to this very day. As for the infamous Joshua Phipps, and all the retellings and variations of the Rotherwood legends, he remains a sinister villain in each and every one. Some have even gone so far as to claim that while working as Ross's bookkeeper, Phipps had an active role in Ross's financial downfall. Of course, as we've discussed, this is in opposition to Ross's own writing and opinion of him. Either way, Phipps's reputation as an exceedingly cruel man was firmly entrenched in local oral tradition as early as the 1900s. On January 18, 1948, the Kingsport Times News ran an article that featured the story of a woman named Mrs. Potter, who had spent the night at Rotherwood 30 years before, in 1901. She claimed that the story she had been told of Joshua Phipps was that he was a cruel slave owner and that rings she saw hanging from the ceiling rafters with her own eyes had been used to string up enslaved men and women for beatings. Mrs. Potter does not identify where these rings were located, but articles from later decades include the description of cells in the basement. It is perhaps from these details that the claim of a whipping post installed in the mansion itself emerged. But as for the presence of these torturous elements in the home, they are far more likely hyperbole than fact. And the family of Joshua Phipps was not amused by this characterization of their ancestor. On January 19, 1948, the day after the article about Mrs. Potter's experience went public, the descendants of Joshua Phipps took out an article of their own, titled Joshua Phipps's Name Cleared in False Rotherwood Legend. According to the family, the story was, quote, 
figments of the imagination of non-slave owners. The family reported that they wanted the story set straight, as, quote, historians will use the files of newspapers for reference, and they wish the facts to be presented in their true light. The article additionally offers a reminder that the Phipps family were among the early settlers in Kingsport, and that its descendants have made great contributions to the community. Also included was a response from Mrs. Potter, who stated that she was merely repeating the stories as they had been told to her in 1907 when she visited Rotherwood. So then the question is, is the reputation of Joshua Phipps any better or worse than any other person who also participated in the institution of slavery? Clearly, his descendants believe he was not. But one piece of evidence, a single line in his will, seems to be the only clue that he may have been a more treacherous owner than most. In his will, Phipps instructs his heir that it may become necessary to, quote, dispose of some slaves from time to time from his conduct. On the other hand, in that same document, he instructs which enslaved men and women should be left to which family member, requesting that an older gentleman named Andy, quote, not be overworked or exposed, that he be employed in lighter duties suited to his age and faithful character. So whether or not Joshua Phipps was an exceedingly cruel man for his time or not will never truly be known. But what is clear is that his legacy has undoubtedly been impacted by the local lore that's been told and retold over the centuries. One other part of Phipps's legend, which is notably absent from the 1948 articles, is the supposed hellhound that leaped from his coffin. Although a fixture of today's retellings, it does not seem to have been a part of the story at that time. Also unmentioned was the character of Phipps's cruel mistress, who is today described as a former slave of mixed race was murdered for her crimes after Phipps's death. Today, Rotherwood Mansion is a private residence, but interest in the property hasn't waned over time. As recently as October of 2021, Johnson City News Channel 11 interviewed the current owner, Dr. Lanita Tebow. They reported that Dr. Tebow purchased the property over 30 years ago, quote, without taking a single visit, but not without hearing some of the spooky stories. But the Kingsport physician claims that she doesn't believe she's ever experienced the paranormal in the home. There are things that happen that I think are explainable. And if someone is inclined to think that's a ghost, they may say so to me. It's just the creaks and groanings and noises of an old house that are there. The Dr. Tebow may not have experienced anything directly otherworldly. She certainly doesn't discount the legends that have been passed on for decades. For upon her arrival to the home several decades ago, she made herself known to whoever or whatever was there. She says that she loudly announced herself to her new roommates that, quote, If there were any ghosts, they were welcome to stay. 
As long as they left me alone, I would leave them alone. Maybe that's why they've let me live here in peace. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you've been listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independently produced podcast created by siblings Brian and Brandon Schecksneider with the support of listeners like you. This month, we'd like to thank our most recent Patreon supporter, Teresa Farris. If you're interested in joining us and receiving additional content, including ad-free episodes, head over to our Patreon page today. The link is in the show notes. Lucky Lady Shacks.